18. And you can read it in your own Bible. You can pull it up on a device. There's Bibles right in front of you in the pew. Those little blue Bibles, page number nine. Okay, Genesis chapter 14, starting in verse 1. In the days of Araphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elsar, Kedolomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyam, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Sanab, king of Adam, Shember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidium, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Cadillamar, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Cadillamar and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephium in Asher, Droth, Karnim, the Zuzim in Ham, and Emim and Shaveh, Kiratiathim. And the Horites in the hill country of Seir as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. And they turned back and came to El Mishpat, that is, Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazaran Tamor. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adam, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidium with Kedlamar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyam, Aramphel, king of Sinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now, the valley of Sidium was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of them fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abraham's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Anur. These were the alleys of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan, and he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Wow, Luke. Thanks for wrestling through all those names. <laughs> Morning, church. How many of you guys have ever really wanted to share Jesus with a neighbor or friend and you felt awkwardness and resistance and maybe confusion about what you should do? Like, in my heart, I want to tell the whole world about Jesus and then just about every situation I get in, something just makes it so hard. Charlotte and I experienced that just this last week as a family member stayed with us. So have you ever wondered how God wants us to approach ministry in a culture that has seemed to move on from Christianity when there's so much resistance to talking about Jesus? 
And also, if you're a visitor here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, have you ever wondered why Christians are so insistent on talking about Jesus, on sharing their faith, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's weird, even when other people don't want to hear about it? We're going to return to the book of Genesis and the story of Abram to get wisdom from God for how we should live in our present moment where we live today. Just by way of reminder, last week, we heard about a great victory of Abram, where he was generous. Right? He was finally a man of faith last week, and he offered Lot, his nephew, who's going to come up in this story, to have the best part of the land. He said, go and take whatever you want for yourself. I'll take what's left over. He finally showed that he believed God was generous, and so he started to be generous. In this week, he's going to be tested again, tested even more severely, tested even more impossibly, and by faith, we're going to see a great victory from this man of God, one that we want to emulate in our own life and in our own community. So let's take a look now. Let's hop into this text, verses 1 and 2. It says, again, in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariak, king of Elisar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, that name's going to come up a lot. And that's like the hardest one, so sorry about that. (laughs) Bishra, king of Gomorrah, Shinbab, king of Adma, and a few others, okay? So there's all these names, all these kings, all these places. You've never heard of them before. Guess what? When you read through the Bible, you never hear of them again. So it seems completely random and pointless. Except what came before in the story is the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is the origin story of these other stories. It's a story where the one nation that was on the earth built a tower attempting to get into heavens to displace God. God, as a result, came and stopped the construction project and divided the languages of the people and scattered them all over the face of the world. And so where we arrive at this story, all these different names and places are reminding us that where we're at in the story are in the ruins of Babel. The ruins of Babel where the judgment of God came down against the sinfulness of men and further divided and dispersed the world. And we can even see that in the first king that's mentioned. It says, in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar. Shinar is the plain where they built the Tower of Babel. We still live in this age We still live in an anti-God age. And Babel is actually all of our origin story here. We go back far enough in history, we all find that we're descended from the people of Babel. We inhabit a world filled with the violence and pride of Babel. And that's what I think all these different names and nations are trying to orient us to, that this is the world in which we live, and this is the world in which this story is about to take place. All right, so with that, let's move on now to the next verse. And it says, And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer. But in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, we always call this guy Cheddar, or, or King Ched. King Ched and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and the Zuzim, and all these different peoples. Then they turned back and came to 
and Mishpat, and they defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazan Tamar. So basically, what we're going to find is that there's four kings and there's five kings. These five kings are serving four kings. So there's nine kings total. Trying to make it as simple as possible. I really like had to be like, what is going on here this week? Now, when it uses the word served, right, that might sound like these five kings like did some favors for the other four kings. Like maybe they helped them in a battle or helped them build a city or something like that. It's not what that word means. It means they paid the five kings paid kings paid tribute to the four kings. Which means these five kings and their people were forced to pay their riches and treasures to the four kings under the threat of violence and death. So in other words, you work, and then you give me some of what you make, or I will come and wreck you. I will come and wreck you. The Babel heart. You do what I want, so I have more stuff. I control you. I get more stuff, or I come and wreck you. That's basically the situation it's setting up. It's like, it's kind of like organized crime in the ancient world. Like if you live like in Chicago in the 1930s and you have a business and then some guys in some suits come around and say, hey, like it'd be a shame if something happened to your business and your leg and your family. Tell you what, why don't you pay me some money and I'll make sure that doesn't happen. And then to stay open, you got to pay that fee. Otherwise that stuff happens to you. And so that is basically the situation that's happening here with these ancient kings in this ancient world that we're seeing here. And then these kings come into the land of Canaan. So in this passage, it's describing all sorts of different kings in the land of Canaan where Abram is. And so what it's describing is basically Abram is all of a sudden engulfed in war. He's just trying to follow God. He's trying to care for people. He's trying to inherit God's promises. And all of a sudden, he's engulfed with war. There's world war all around Abram as all the different kings and kingdoms suddenly go into battle in ancient Canaan. And that's where we pick up here in verse 8. It says, Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with King Cheddar, king of Elam, Tidel, king of Goyim, Arafel, king of Shinar, and Ariak, the king of Elisar. Four kings against the five. You're confused? Four kings against five kings. Thanks for making that simple, Moses. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled into the hill country. So the enemy took all of the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions, and they went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and they went their way. One thing that I love about the Bible is that it does not sugarcoat anything, right? The story that we're hearing this morning is a story about our world. This land all of a sudden descends into violence and bloodshed because of the pride in people's hearts where they think that they can exalt themselves over God and exalt themselves over other people. And what happens here is just an ugly, disgraceful battle where all sorts of people are killing each other some people are running away, and it says they fall into a bitumen pit, which is like a tar pit. So the image you could think of is 
soldiers falling into tar pits and drowning alive. God is not ignorant about the suffering in this world. The Bible does not shy away from the brokenness that we all experience. If you're here this morning and you've experienced life-changing tragedy, maybe you're experiencing life-changing tragedy right now, maybe someone you love has died, maybe you're in the throes of an addiction, maybe a relationship you care more about anything is broken, the God who wrote this book understands. As we read stories about suffering and brokenness and pain, it reminds us that our God is not ignorant of these things. And actually, he spells them out in plain detail to show that he understands that this is part of the story and the part of the story we inhabit right now as we await the return of the king to make all things right. So let these images of death and suffering remind you that we have a king who does not shy away from evil and suffering, and he's keeping track of the evil that happens around us. He, see, he saw these events. He saw the murder and the bloodshed. He sees the murder and the bloodshed in the world today. He sees the things that people do to you that you wish had never been done to you, and he keeps an account, and he will settle all things and make all things right when he comes again. He is a God of justice. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the righteous and the unrighteous what the book of Proverbs says. And what we see in in this story here is not only an image of the world we inhabit, but an image of our own hearts. Now, we're descended from the exact same origin story as these evil kings who are just fighting one another. And what you'll notice in this story is that there's no hero. There's no hero so far. There's just people killing each other trying to get more stuff. And what we'll see right now is that this story is not only the image of the world, it's an image of ourselves. And thankfully, we live in a world that has better social norms than they did back then. And so most likely, you won't kill someone else because they don't do what you want them to do. They won't kill you because you don't give them what They want you to, although it's possible and although it does happen in a lot of places in the world, but most likely this does not characterize a lot of your interactions. And yet, we struggle with the same heart idols as these kings. I struggle with the same heart idols as these kings. And as I read this story, their heart idols are stuff and control. Does that resonate with anyone? Do you spend your mind and your emotions on stuff and control? Like, oh... What do I get mad about when my stuff breaks, when I lose control of my life? That's what gets me mad. That's what makes me want to snap and hurt someone, right? So so what we see is that this is a diagnosis of ourselves, that we struggle with the exact same things as these kings do, and it leaves us in a place of desperation. God, change me from the inside out. I need to become a new person. The true war that I have to fight is not a war against other people outside. It's a war against the inner man or woman within. And it's only put to death through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, who is unlike any of us, who lived and died and rose again and defeated that old sinful nature so that I can put it to death today. You can put it to death today. So be cautious. 
be cautious lest you read this story and think this is so far away from me, I could never do anything like this. Because all of history shows us what the world is like and it shows us what we're like. So here we are in the story. Brutal violence and bloodshed. No heroes, hopelessness. The only hope at this point is if God breaks in and does something, right? Which is just the story of all of our lives. Hopelessness unless God breaks in and does something. So let's watch how God responds through Abram. And I say through Abram because in this story, he's acting in faith. And so God's using him as an instrument. Let's see now how God responds through Abram. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who is living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Anur. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken... He led forth his trained men, born of his house, 318 of them, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night and his servants and defeated them and pursued them to Horba, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So someone flees from the battle and finds Abram and asks for help. Abram might have been the last person at this point who was able to help at all. Now, where do we find Abram? What's he doing? There's nine kings going into war and conquest, trying to get stuff at the cost of blood everywhere around him, and there's Abram in the midst of them all, living at peace with people. It says he's got friends, he's got allies. He's the contrast king to the evil kings of the earth. Instead of killing people, he's seeking to befriend people. And it even says he's living on someone else's land. (laughs) What are all these kings fighting to do? They're trying to grasp and take and seize as much land as possible. And here's Abram. He's living on someone else's land, not trying to take anything from anybody. He's living at peace in a world of violence and contention. He's looking to make friends and allies rather than enemies. He values relationships more than he values stuff and control. Right? So Abram has a different set of priorities. He values unseen spiritual things more than physical things he can have and possess. And as a result of that, he becomes a different kind of person. What you value in your heart determines how you live towards other people. And as Abram values unseen spiritual realities more than physical stuff he can hold and possess, he ends up becoming like his God and living at peace and with love towards other people rather than violence and strife. You want to become a new kind of person? If you want to become like the Lord God Almighty, then you got to change by his grace what you love through faith and repentance. So Abram is living at peace And what a reminder to us this morning that as Christians in this world, we should seek to live at peace with all of our neighbors as much as is possible, as much as it depends on us. May we not have any contention or bickering with anyone unless it's over the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time we enter into a conflict with our neighbor that's not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we undermine our message. We have a message of peace and reconciliation. So if we're living at, with strife and contention with other people, 
How can you tell them about a piece of message of peace and reconciliation? Just the other night, I'm sit, my wife Charlotte and me were sitting in the backyard. Two of our neighbors came over from one house over, a family of, of people who are very nice people. They're a Mormon family. And then uh, a couple houses down, there's an older man who's living a gay lifestyle, came and sat with us at the fire. There's major worldview differences between all three of us here. Major worldview differences. And yet, besides the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm not called to correct any of those worldview differences. It's okay, I can just love and be with and care for and befriend people exactly as they are. And then when the chance comes, call them to repentance and faith because that's how my God treated me. He didn't ask me to change anything except for faith. And then once I believe in him, I have to change everything else. But the first thing, right? He didn't say, clean yourself up, change your lifestyle, go become a pastor, and then I'll be your friend. He said, no, come to me as you are, repent and believe, and then we will be friends, and then it will change everything for you. And may we approach other people the same way. The only thing we need to ask them to change is repentance and faith towards God, and then we'll talk about all the other stuff, and we'll leave all the other stuff until then. We don't need to change their politics. We don't need to change their culture. We don't need to change how long or messy their yard is. We just need to help them change their heart toward God. So Abram's living at peace, but then he finally enters into war. There's a time for peace, and there's a time for war. When did he enter into war? I think this is significant also. He didn't enter into war until his kinsman Lot was taken captive. The reason Abram went to war was not to get more stuff for himself. It was to save the life of someone else. The whole reason he went to war was different. Again, he was not governed by the purposes of things he could hold and have and possess. He was governed by unseen spiritual realities and caring for others more than himself. So it's not greed that leads him to war. It's compassion. It's not the desire for more that leads him to war. It's the desire for lot. And so it says that he pursues him. He leads forth his trained men, 318 of them, of his household. This guy has a huge household. My goodness. 300 dudes ready to fight just like that. That's crazy. And it says that they pursued these kings as far as Dan. If we remember earlier in the story, Abraham is a slave of his fear. His fear causes him to leave the promised land and head to Egypt. He's not afraid anymore. He's ready to fight the biggest superpower the world has seen up to that point, or at least in that time. And he calls his trained men and says, we are going to pursue them and go into battle. And it says that he pursued them as far as Dan, which if you know your geography, the land of Canaan is in the far north, and he's probably somewhere in the south right now. So he went on a cross-country military pursuit of these people to get his nephew back. I don't know if any of you guys remember at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring, right? Mary and Pippin are, are captured, and everyone's like, Aragorn, what do we do? He's like, we travel light. Let's hunt some orc. And like for the next few days, they're just running and running and running and running across the entire country to save their friends. That's exactly the kind of picture you should see here is that Abram 
as a friend who's lost and captive, and he's running and running and running, risking his life, risking his men's life to save him. Question, did Lot deserve to be rescued? Right, because when you read this story, Lot just makes you want to pull your hair out. Because we know, we know already that Sodom's a sinful, evil place. We know that. We know it. So quick side note, where we're at in the story of the Bible, as Christians right now, we're supposed to live in cities that are fallen. We're supposed to do that and love our neighbors. That's a good thing. But at this point in the story, what cities image and show us is rebelling against God. So when Jesus comes, he redeems the city, and we're supposed to love the city, but we're not to that point in the story yet. And to live in the city shows a rebellious heart towards God, at least when the city is in rebellion against God. And it says... That Lot, in the last story, Lot moves near to Sodom. Now in this story, he moves into Sodom and he's swept away. He's swept away with the sin and evil of that city. He's in trouble because of his own fault. It's Lot's fault that he's captured. And yet, and yet, Abram heroically, selflessly, courageously, faithfully pursues him to the ends of the earth. Does that sound like Jesus to anybody? Does that sound like Jesus to anybody? And if we're, and if we're in the story, who are we? Aren't we Lot? Like we chose, we chose to make our home in a place of suffering and death, at home with our sin in rebellion against God, and yet he came and pursued until he won us over. There's this term for God that I love it. I just love it when it's used. Some people have referred to him as the hound of heaven. The hound of heaven who pursues his own. And that's the only way anyone ever gets saved, is if God Almighty pursues you and wins you to himself through the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you feel like God is pursuing you, I just want to invite you to surrender to him. Don't keep running. Do not keep running. He's on a rescue mission and his arms are open wide and he's saying to you this morning, come, come, I'm a God who rescues, redeems, and who saves. It says here that Abram has 318 men. Which I take to mean that Abram had a force that was so small he should not have won. Like 318 guys in your house is a lot, unless you're going against four kings who just wiped everyone else out. Like later in the Bible, when uh, Gideon goes to war, he also has about 300 men, and it's a sign of their weakness and inability to win on their own which I take to mean here that what that detail is telling us is that Abram did not win on his own strength. He won because of the strength of his God. And actually, we're going to see that in verse 20 when he meets another guy named Melchizedek, another crazy name, another crazy person to try to figure out where he's from. And he says, Blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So Abram only goes to war for spiritual goals, and only goes to war with spiritual methods. He doesn't use the big armies. He doesn't use all the tools that the other kings of the earth used. He uses a small army in which he must depend upon his God in order to be victorious. So he's a spiritual man fighting for spiritual goals by spiritual means, and he is utterly different from the example of the other kings of the earth. And then it says he brought back all the possessions. And brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So he goes and he wins. 
And once again, his victory was not about him getting more stuff. It was about restoring that which was lost. And the beautiful thing about being a follower of Jesus is he restores everything to you that your sin and the world has taken away. Whether in the course of this life or culminating in the next, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who in his victory plundered our enemy and gives back to us everything that we ever lost. If you're sitting this morning and you're filled with regret at the actions you've done or the actions that have been done to you, the only way to get everything back that your sin or someone else's sin has ever taken from you is to follow Jesus, the one who won it all back. So what are we supposed to learn from this story? This really strange story. What are we supposed to learn from it? I think we're supposed to see in it an image of the kind of warfare that God approves of. An image of the kind of warfare that God approves of. Abram's a landless king, a landless warrior, not fighting for stuff, fighting for people. Abram's not depending on himself. He's depending on God. And all of these things point us forward and anticipate the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ which was the ultimate act of warfare in the Bible, fought by spiritual means for spiritual purposes. When our Lord Jesus hung on the cross, was he getting any sort of riches, worldly riches for himself? Could he have? Absolutely not. Could he have won a physical victory by hanging on a cross? He couldn't. He was winning victories that we couldn't see in this age, but will enjoy forever in the next age by fighting for spiritual purposes, by spiritual means. That's what this story is anticipating. It's looking forward to the one who is victorious in the only way that matters. It's an image of the warfare we are called to fight as well as followers of Jesus. As followers of Jesus, we are in a war, and we are called to war. But we're landless war. We're not fighting to get stuff in this earth. We're fighting for people. We're not fighting to get things in this age. We're fighting to rescue people for the age to come. And in this story, right, Abram actually uses a sword. He actually uses fists. He actually uses violence. But We have to remember that this is at an earlier stage in the story of the Bible. We're not yet to the cross of Jesus. And at the cross of Jesus, we get to a new place where there's only spiritual tools used to rescue people, not physical violence, not physical death. So much so that this is what the Apostle Paul writes in the letter of 2 Corinthians. This is what he writes to us. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive to obey Christ. We don't use fists. We don't use swords. We use persuasion. We use words, and we sacrifice ourselves. That's the way that we fight. We have a weapon that's better than Abram had. We have the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ that pierces all the way to the heart and brings back dead people to life. That's how we fight against our enemy. Our enemy is not our neighbor. Our enemy is the sin that holds our neighbor captive and the evil one who deceived them in the first place. That's who we're called to fight against. And make no mistake, since their everlasting destiny and our everlasting destiny is at stake, we must be at war, church. We are called to fight against evil with this same tenacity. 
but with the weapons that Jesus has given us, the word of God and the preaching of the gospel. I love this quote by Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, Michael Patterson actually showed it to me once. And she wrote that the weapons of our warfare, the weapons of our warfare, cast down atheistic imaginations with pot roast suppers and watermelon and psalm singing and warm mugs of tea and prayer and repentance. We fight with watermelon and pot roast. Our warfare should feel like gentleness, patience, and kindness towards people who are different from us. Because that's what Jesus' warfare felt like to us. And why is it called warfare? Because in the midst of our patience, kindness, and tenderness, we have to be bold with the truth. And that will meet resistance. And just like in any battle, we must push through with the truth when God has called us to it. Make no mistake, our value, make disciples, is a call into spiritual combat, church. We're called into spiritual combat for the sake of other people. But it will transform our community from people who live for their own petty interests and concerns to people who lay down their lives beautifully so that other people can live. Our church will look like the gospel if we engage in this kind of warfare. So this is a summons this morning. If you're living idly and allowing your neighbor, friends, and even strangers you meet to go to spiritual destruction unwarned and unloved. Jesus left us with the authority and the power to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So may no one that we ever come across go to spiritual destruction unwarned, unloved, uncared for. For if that happens, we are derelict of duty in this war. And instead, instead, May we lay down all of our selfish interests and fight for spiritual purposes like Jesus, like Abram, by spiritual means like Jesus, like Abram, and so that we might increasingly grow closer to our God and like our God and to be a means of rescue for all kinds of people. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father that nothing stopped you from pursuing us to the point of death, even death on a cross. So may nothing stop us from pursuing others to the point of death, loving till the very end. May we make war on sin and unbelief by preaching the gospel and showing other people what Jesus is like. And may we make war on our own sin right now, lest we become unuseful to you in your battle to rescue the world. Thank you for the example and life of Abram that points us to things far greater than we could ever be a part of on our own. Help us to worship the God who is worthy of it right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Just pray and, and think through these as the band plays. When is the last time you shared the gospel with a neighbor or stranger? What is one way you could make sharing the gospel with others a normal rhythm? Or if you don't know how to do that yet, what's one way you could even relationally connect with unbelievers? If you don't know how to make sharing the gospel a normal part of your rhythm, what's one way you could just start to relationally connect with unbelievers? 
One example I gave was bonfire in my backyard. It can be literally as simple as that. What's one way you can start to connect with unbelievers? And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, what's one thing you heard in this sermon that makes you want to know him more? I invite you now to go to God and spend some time with him.